everyone. This is Kate Saloom, founding editor of Public Books. I'm dropping it into your feed today to introduce a brand new podcast that we've created for you. It's called Primary Sources. Primary Sources is hosted by AL Press. Hi, AL. Hi, Kate. It's great to be here today. Glad to have you. So before we hit play on the first episode, can you tell us a little bit about the show? Sure. Every week, I interview a different writer or thinker about one of their greatest influences. So, for example, we'll have the historian Rick Perlstein talking about Gary Wills, or the law professor Andrea Armstrong talking about the influence incarcerated people have had on her work. And what about the episode we're about to hear? This first episode features ta Coates talking about the historian Tony Judd, whose writing on post-war Europe deeply shaped ta own writing on race in America. I'm really excited about primary sources because I always want to know how thinkers come up with their ideas and particularly who they turn to and read when they want inspiration. And that is exactly what listeners will learn from this first season of primary sources. It is indeed. Is there anything else listeners should know? I should mention that this show is a collaboration between public books and the Type Media Center. And that if you like what you hear today, you can search for and subscribe to Primary Sources wherever you get your podcasts. Terrific. Here then is the first episode of Primary Sources. From public books and type media, this is Primary Sources the show where writers and intellectuals talk about some of the greatest influences on their work. I'm Eyal Press. My guest today is the author and journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi is best known for his writing about racism in America. In particular, his 2014 essay, The Case for Reparations, which appeared in The Atlantic, and his 2015 book, Between the World and me. Tanahasi's readers know that the toll racism has inflicted on the bodies of black people and the enduring power of white supremacy have long preoccupied him. On this show, however, he'll be talking about a subject, or rather an influence, that few people associate with his work. That influence is the late Tony Judd, a British historian. In 2005, Judd published his magnum opus, Post-War, a sweeping 933-page history of modern Europe. Tanahasi never met Judd. He started reading his work after hearing about him from a friend who was fortunate enough to meet him. That friend was me. I've known Tanahasi for nearly 20 years, since we were both freelance writers struggling to make it as journalists. In our conversation, which was recorded last fall, Tanahasi and I talk about why post-war had such a profound impact on him. We explore the preface Tanahasi wrote to Ill Fares the Land, another of Judd's books, which has just been reissued by Penguin. We also talk about the power of language to help us imagine a better world. Whether Tanahasi identifies as an Afro-pessimist and what it's like to grow up in a nationalist household, which is another experience the two of us share. 
A few quick other notes for context. Early in our conversation, Tanahasi mentions the Remark Forum. This was a series of conferences that Tony Jutt organized about ideas and issues that interested him, which I was lucky enough to attend on several occasions. Tanahasi also mentions John Gruden, the former coach of the LA Raiders, who you may recall last fall was revealed to have used racist and homophobic language to describe NFL players. Tanahasi Coates, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, good to be here, y'all. When did Tony Judd first start to matter to you? It really was in conversations with you, if you remember. You used to go to these incredible, I mean, we were, you know, both <laughs> young writers <laughs> at the time coming up. And you used to talk about these remarkable, it was a, a Lamarck form, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you would talk about these, you know, incredible trips and how just beautiful it was intellectually and how stimulating it was. You know, at, at that age, you're, you're really trying to, you know, figure things out. So I, I was aware of Tony through that. And then, of course, you know, I was aware of that piece he wrote, you know, taking the quote unquote liberal hawks uh, to task. I think I remember the title of that piece. I, was it titled Bush's Useful Idiots? I think that was it. And maybe it was in London Review of Books. Was that, do I have that right? Yes, yes. And at the time, that still had a kind of shock value, right? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. It was still like, what? You know what I mean? I mean, it looked bad. But the years have only proven that piece more and more correct. I mean, I think about that piece now, and it's a, a reminder that I think the pressure to not be stupid is intense. And when a bunch of people whose profile is intelligence, smartness, smartness, let me not say intelligence. And I, and I think in certain quarters, you know, we have a cult of smartness. There's just deep pressure to not, you know, be stupid. And then there's the haze of the 60s and not wanting to be what people deride as the loony left. Frankly, my roots are there. Um, the pressure's intense, you know what I mean? And these people really made a, a brand out of rigor. And Tony just showed a different kind of rigor, you, you know what I mean? I could see it in that piece. But I hadn't really, you know, read anything of length until, um, God, this is after he passed, years later. I was, you know, at the Atlantic, always been interested in European history. That predated Tony. I mean, going back to, you know, my time at Howard, uh, where I took European history. So that was already there. I think I had started my studies in French by then. And of course, you know, that ultimately leads you to the culture and the history and everything. I had this great job at The Atlantic, blogging, and, you know, a large part of that was blogging about what I was reading. And honestly, one of the ways that I consume books, because there's so many of them, is, is by audiobook, you know, when I'm cooking or cleaning the house. And I believe I had already bought post-war, so I think I had the volume. You know, it's this big, thick volume, and it just kind of, for a lot of people, it just sits on their bookshelf, you know, as big, it's thick volumes. It's a doorstopper, yeah. It's a doorstopper. It's a doorstopper. And so I had it there, and I had always meant to read it. I'm going to read post-war. I'm going to read post-war. I'm going to read post-war. And I stumbled upon this beautifully read, you know, audio version of, of, of Tony's book and beautifully captured. And I cut it on one day, and it just stopped me, <laughs> you know? And I think, I think like, the, the, like, like my first recollection of it, actually, is not even the book. 
but a quote. And as I'm recalling now, I was working on the case for reparations. And there was a section in there about Israel in there. And really what the section was ultimately about was how the Holocaust was dealt with in Germany and how the fact that even though we remember Germany is going on this great path of sort of redemption and everything, you know, what Tony was talking about is how even at the time they paid out reparations, it was hugely debated within Germany, <laughs> you know? And, and so much of the history that was in there as I read around it looked really, really familiar within that book. I believe there's a part where he talks about public opinion polling around who should be held accountable for the Holocaust. And Germans say something that's very, very familiar to me as an African-American, and that is only those who are directly responsible, <laughs> mm. which goes against the idea of a state itself. So eventually, you know, I got into the book and the book just had a profound impact on me. And so it was before Between the World and Me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. One thing I just wanted to ask, just to clarify, um, you never met Tony. Is that right? No, no, you no. You never no. met him? No, became great friends with his family after he passed, but never met Tony. Yeah, and I'm really struck by that because in your preface to Ill Fares the Land, one of the things that really struck me was you referred to him as Tony. And I wondered as I read that, is that because he's someone you sort of feel like you wish you'd known or maybe just through his family and through my kind of talking about him and... Uh, it's almost like there's a kinship there. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I, I, I wish I'd known him. I think we would have gotten to some great arguments and fights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, um, and by great, I mean like like beneficial for me. That, that's what I mean. You know, not the kind that serves posturing as point and point scoring. But um, I would say Jenny is a huge part of that. Um, his wife and a great historian in her own right. You know how I know him personally is spending time with his family. The stories live with me because like one of my big questions is having so much respect for post-war is how one disappears for the time that it takes, how one foregoes those fights. And this is a question for me, even to this very day, how one foregoes those fights that feel so immediate and feel like they need you, like you need to be speaking to them. Because to do something that mammoth, you, you have to disappear. You have to disappear for long, long periods of time. And so, you know, me and Jenny have had, you know, just, just great discussions about him and also about her own work, which is of that, you know, sort of variety, you know, these huge tomes that it takes forever to actually get done. Right. How one disappears to do that. Yeah. And I feel like, like this is important for any young writers who are listening to this right now. There is such intense pressure to be of the moment, on the moment. I got a friend who I'm just texting with right now who's working, before I got on with you, was working on a book, and she said to me, fuck, all of my conclusions are going to be out there before my book is done. And, and like there's that pressure to, you know what I mean, to feel like I'm going to be too late, I'm going to be too late, I'm going to be too late. Totally. If you are on your project and you are worthy of your project, as Tony was, you can never be too late. It's you. You know what I mean? It's you who will bleed through the work. You know, and if you do the work, like you, you, just, you just have to have to believe that. But it takes great discipline to do it. Completely. And I've had that fear that your friend texted so many times, especially with magazine articles, but also with books. Yes. And if we think about post-war, I mean, a history of Europe. Right. You know, right. what's what's new here? Right. 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 Uh, right. I mean, right. 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 There are libraries full of that subject already. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, I really identify with the fear that that your friend texted, but but also with this thing of 
it's you, it's you doing mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. you sinking in and really having to sink in. Um, you have said of post-war, you say you never came across a book that was so merciless. That was the word that, that jumped out at me. And that this mattered to you, especially at a particular moment in your life in relationship to what you kind of describe as the burden of hope that you felt you were supposed to provide for people. I wonder if you can just say a little more about that and how maybe it it influenced Between the World and Me or or other writing that you've done. Yeah, so um, not just the burden of hope, because I think hope is almost a euphemistic way of saying what people are often asking for. You know, I've had some time to think about this now. In a world in which it feels like there's a scandal coming out every other week about politicians. We, we, we live in a time of just relentless information, right? And so what that means is people who were taken as unimpeachable because the information just wasn't out there are no longer anymore. You know, um, their subject, their legitimacy is subject to debate within the public square in a way that really wasn't possible. Really, I would say pre-internet. I would say this happened really within our lifetimes. And so with legitimacy questioned, I think there's a natural instinct to look to various figures, you know, and especially when you're somebody who writes about the force of, of, of race and racism, which is just so right down the spine of American history. There is, in its most benevolent, there's, a, I think, a desire for people to feel like, okay, but the arc really does bend towards justice, right? Nobody wants to, you know, go home and think that they're actually the protagonist, the antagonist, the side character in a great tragedy. Nobody wants to feel that way. Nobody even wants to feel like they don't know whether it's tragedy or not. You know what I mean? And at the time I was blogging, I got a lot of that. I got a lot. Why, why, why are you so dark? Why are the things you're writing so dark? And there was an, almost a kind of loneliness about that. And I, and I think, again, because I think so many times when black people command the public square, the role they play is one of inspiration. That was the role Barack Obama reveled in, for instance. That was what I think, rightly or not, people you know, drew from Martin Luther King, inspiration. And somewhere in me, I felt like, but all the writing I love and admire doesn't really do that. It might be inspiring. But that's not really, you know what I mean, what it's setting out to do. And so, and, and, and A.L., I'm steering this away from this idea of hope because I don't want to say that I'm saying that post-war was hopeless. It just was unconcerned with it. There's a couple of quotes in the book I wanted to read to you um, on this particular theme. Right at the end of the book, Tony says, Unlike memory, which confirms and reinforces itself, history contributes to the disenchantment of the world. That's right. Most of what it has to offer is discomforting, mm-hmm. even disruptive. And I wonder if that is part of why this book really spoke to you at a particular moment when you were maybe feeling this uh, pressure to inspire people, to give them, you know, an inspiring message. No, I, I think that's dead on. I think that's dead on. And I think that disenchantment part probably could be extended out to art and literature too. Much of what we consider great art or great, it's, it's, it's ultimately disenchanting. Now, it's clarifying, too, and it's enlightening. But does it make us feel like, at the end of the day, everything's going to be okay? 
That book is so brutal, man. It's so, so brutal. After the Holocaust, I think like in the popular mind, and I don't know why I ever believed this, but I, I think in the popular mind, there was this idea that the Holocaust happened. The Jews who, you know, survived, you know, were made whole. Everything was okay. And Europe learned its lesson. And I think it's Poland that Tony Close's survivors coming back to. And the Poles look at the, the, the Jews who return and they say, why have you come back? And that was just devastating. You know what I mean? Like that, that just, boy, that fucked me up. This is not the good war. This is the op, and this is not the good post-war, right? right? right I right. mean, this is, you know, he, I think you and I have talked about this, but he opens the book talking about how massive ethnic cleansing basically took place in Europe um, for like 30 years, right? From World War One all the way through 1945. Right. Basically, people just created homogenous societies by kicking out ethnic groups that were different. That's right. That's right. He says the peace was actually made through ethnic cleansing effectively. Right. I mean, isn't that the argument? Yes, yes, yes. And he begins with that. And there's this quote, and and I mention it because it's it's also in your preface to Ill Fares the Land. There's this observer at the time he quotes in the book, I think it's a New York Times correspondent Mm -hmm. who says, you know, there will be retribution for for these crimes. And Tony very quickly says, you know, in dryly, history offered no retribution for these crimes. Right. It just goes right into a kind of anti-redemptive message. I guess what I'm wondering is, do you think it took someone who's writing outside of your culture, outside of your country, to present a perspective like this? Like, can you imagine an Americanist writing about America having a similar effect on you? You know, the answer is yes, but not for the reasons one would think. Um, I, th- I think a lot of it is because of how Europe exists in, in, in the imagination. So w- when you're black, Africa is the land of chaos, of disorder, of pathology. That's how the history is told. That's the feeling you get from the broader pop culture. And you as an African-American are a descendant of that. You, you are the embodiment of pathology, cannibalism of, you know, destructive, negative forces. And so that extends to the memory of the Holocaust, by the way. Because even though, you know, there's this massive, massive, historic unprecedented crime against humanity that happens right within the heart of of civilization. You know, who is more civilized than the philosophers of Germany? You know what I mean? There's a kind of order that's automatically put on it. It's hard to explain where you feel like, oh, oh, this happened, but it was okay, you know, because of X, Y, and Z. Not that the crime was okay, but that there was a kind of ABC order to what happened as compared to the mess of, of, say, of slavery, you know, and, and enslavement. And you just find that's just not true. So in that sense, yes. I mean, I I think I I needed to read about the citadel of of civilization, of enlightenment, you know, and the horrors that happened within the 20th century, within the modern era, not during the Hundred Years' War, not during the quote-unquote dark, right now, right now, within the lifetime of of, of my parents, my grandparents. One of the great things about post-war is it's, you know, how it, how as a, you know, literally as a work of history, how it uses history and Tony's eye for quotes. And he quotes from, uh, you know, he's talking about partisan resistance in Yugoslavia to the Nazis. And you think, oh, okay, yeah, Nazis, bad. Partisans, good. You know what I mean? And you're reading this and there's almost a kind of psychic effect. You immediately start rooting for the partisans, right? 
And instead, Tony gives you this mess of partisans fighting partisans. And he's quoting from um, Milo Vandilas. And he says, um, for hours, both armies clambered up rocky ravines to escape annihilation or to destroy a little group of their countrymen, often neighbors, on some jutting peak 6,000 feet high in a starving, bleeding, captive land. It came to mind that this is what had become of all our theories and visions of the workers' and peasants' struggle against the bourgeoisie. I read that. I said, damn. I reread that passage <laughs> last night, actually, and I was thinking about it because, um, yeah, it has that effect that he does a number of times in this book where it's like these big ideas get stripped away and what's left is lies and mistakes mm -hmm. and crime, mm -hmm. right? There's no romance of Europe in this book. So you can see how that would allow me to write about America in a different way and about American history. Like if this guy can write about Europe like this, then I can be an interrogator in much the same way. I don't have to deliver a neat picture. I don't have to, you know, deliver the order of American revolution, emancipation, civil rights movement, always getting better, always improving, always progress. This kind of neat model of it. I don't have to write out of that. So that's the part of it that was liberating because you use that, that word as well. It's merciless, but you also say, you know, it might sound weird that such a grim book was liberating, yeah. but you say it was liberating. Is that the liberation going to American history and saying, I don't have to soften the edges here or I don't have to present a redemptive thread in this? So it's interesting because I think part of this is also histori historiographical in the sense that I am, if not directly certainly indirectly, but probably also directly influenced by a generation of historians and the names that come to mind are James McPherson, Gordon Wood. These are historians of, of, of American history who I think in some fundamental way were revolutionary uh, because they were very clear about America's slaveholding past and what America came out of. But probably also at the same time, and I don't want to overstate this, but probably felt that the American project was a good and revolutionary thing. You can debate that back and forth, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not even necessarily saying that they're wrong. I am saying that I was freed out of the responsibility to write out of that. You understand that I had the freedom to write in a much more chaotic, almost, Way I, I, I don't have to say that ultimately this was a revolutionary good thing. Because, see, the thing is, there's a way that African-Americans can feel very comfortable within that themselves. Like, they can fit themselves in that and say, well, there was this dream. Yeah, we kind of came together in this chaotic way. But we as black people, you know, are inspired by the words of Jefferson. We hope to live them out. We're, you know, improving things. We're improving America. We're improving. And you get wrapped into the national project. It takes a lot of work to write outside of it. I don't even know that Between the World and Me is ultimately successful at that. But certainly Tony pointed the way. But they are both unconsoling mm -hmm. books. And in that sense, you, they couldn't be more different, right? His is a doorstopper. Yours right. is, is, is a slender. <laughs> uh, his is, is, is steeped in footnotes. Yours is this beautiful essay. But the, something in the sensibility seems to me they belong on a shelf real close to each other. And it sounds like... Can you it, see it? Can you see it yourself, like, as a reader? 
I mean, I've been rereading both books. Like uh, when I say that, does this sound crazy to you? <laughs> no, it actually makes sense because I have to say for myself as, as someone who has family who perished in the Holocaust and barely survived the Holocaust, it's devastating in a different way to read mm. post-war, um, right? But it's equally that thing of you feel the rug is being pulled out from under you. As That's much it, as right. you would think, I would know that it took Europe 30, 40 years to actually circle around to start talking frankly about what happened and the Holocaust. I, I have to say it, it still comes as a shock just to see it on, mm-hmm. on the page, even if it isn't a surprise. And maybe it's the way that he writes and the way right. you know, you're presenting his not really prettifying it in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so have there been other times where, like you said, he taught you not to be a clergyman? Um, I don't think anyone would, would confuse you for a clergyman in, in your work and your writing. But I wonder if after Between the World and Me, as protests are happening, you are maybe finding yourself asked to if not play the role of a clergyman, play the role of something other than the writer you are. Um, were there ever times where, where you kind of thought, I would do that if I weren't a writer, but I'm a writer? All the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. And again, you know, look, there is the, the, the poisonous version of this, which is basically an attempt to um, erase and, and push any kind of narrative that questions the official quote-unquote narrative of America and, and the progress of events out of the public sphere. That's one thing. I mean, we saw that during the Iraq war. But the, the actually, the more tempting and the more disquieting and the more... Um, the version I have trouble with is when I go to West Baltimore, right? You know, literally, went to West Baltimore to launch Between the World and Me. And people are looking for inspiration and they're looking for hope and they're looking to you and to look at them and say, that, I'm sorry, that's not my job. I can't do that. I, I, would, I would be lying to you if I... If I, if I it's... That's harsh. <laughs> That's really, really, really hard. Because basically what's happening is there should be people that do that. But the feeling is that the people who are supposed to do that have fallen down. They're not enough of them. And um, people are asking you to fill that role. And uh, I think also maybe personally, it, there's something of it in my story. Uh, because I, I, you know, I've said this before, and this comes out of certainly a degree of material benefit and privilege. But for me personally, what I remember being most vexing about being a kid growing up black in America was not just not understanding why. You know, and that's the thing about the official version. It doesn't quite make sense. Like as a dark part of you that's like, something is off in this picture and I can't identify what it is. But this just doesn't sound right. You know, this really, really, really doesn't sound right. And I, I, I can't put my finger on it. And one day you, you wake up and you realize, and I think this is a, you know, a common experience for African-Americans, but maybe a common experience for anybody you know, who is in their own way outside of the mainstream of America. You realize I've been lied to. <laughs> I've actually been lied to. And there's just a tremendous feeling of emptiness in that, of not knowing what's true, of not knowing... You know, uh, uh, I saw uh, uh, Lewis Riddick talking about uh, the revelation of John Gruden's emails. You know, Lewis Riddick, who played for John Gruden, and he said, you see this, and, 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 and I don't know who to trust. I, don't, I thought I knew this man. I believed in him. And then I find out this is who this guy was. 
Man. What am I supposed to listen to now? That's the feeling of, of becoming conscious. It's like, well, damn. I mean, if I go to the Jefferson Memorial, and this is in some profound way a lie. If I go on the mall and I walk to the, the Washington Monument, and I realize this guy was pursuing runaway slaves into Pennsylvania <laughs> and up through, what am I supposed to do with that? When I think about the influence on you that Tony has, I also have to think about what's missing from his work. And you don't sidestep that. You don't gloss over it in this preface to, to Ill Fares the Land. And that is, you know, European colonialism. Um, you say, you know, I think you use the phrase scant attention. He was not just unenthusiastic about identity politics, but quite critical and dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You note all of that, um, but you, you don't dismiss him for that. You don't say, okay, I'm not going to read this guy. He's not important to me. Why not? I guess I feel like as an African-American, that's not a luxury that I ever had. I can remember being a teenager and my dad, my dad, you know, telling me that the Wall Street Journal center column had some of the best journalism in the world. This is Wall Street Journal, right? You got to read it. Okay, I know the editorial page is racist as hell. and I, But look, this is, <laughs> these guys, you know, do really well at this. And for all of your, you know, feeling about things, you, you have to read it. If you're going to look at the history of this country, even if you seek to explore the history of slavery, it's very hard to not read people that, you know what I mean? You have deep, deep, I'm talking deeper than Tony, like much, much deeper than Tony, obviously. Yeah. You know, I didn't read Tony and think, oh, this is some racist bullshit. Like, it's not like that. But I'm talking about people where you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not, not I just don't disagree with. With Tony, it's a matter of emphasis, but you're saying with many others, it's, it's a matter of flat out offense and you have to look past the offense. You know, there are plenty of people who, you know, as I get later into my career, Hitchens. I mean, the work of Hitchens. There's stuff of Hitchens that had a huge, huge, you know, his letter to a young contract had a big influence on me. I, I mean, what am I? Did I agree with everything in that book? Did I agree with who Hitchens, you know, was even, you know, before? No. No. You know, I'll say this to the day I, you know, die. I mean, I obviously detest much of what Andrew Sullivan, you know, stands for. Did I learn from him blog? I did. I did. So look, you know, that, that is not an endorsement or anything of, of anybody, but I don't, that never would have occurred to me, right? That's just not how I, how I work and how I process. If you screened out all of those influences that were flawed, you'd have no influences to draw upon. It's basically, basic, or very few, right? I mean, there, there would be a, a small circle. I mean, look, um, there are people like, so like probably who have, the, you know, the large, like Baldwin, you know what I mean? Who I probably 99% agree with. You know, like there are people like that, you know, Toni Morrison, like certainly there are people, you know, like that, right? But I just, um, if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I mean, there's all sorts of just straight up misogyny in that book. I just, I mean, I, I don't, that's just not how my brain worked. There's a beautiful passage in in the preface that is directly about this. Um, You've just talked about the weakness that runs through, in your mind, the weakness that runs through Judd's work and through post-war, which is the scant attention to colonialism and race. And then you say, it would be a mistake to ignore this missing element in Tony's work, but it would also be a mistake to disqualify the whole of it on such a basis. An intellectual lineage at its best means the progeny pick up and improve upon the work of their ancestors. That's right. I count Tony as one of mine. 
He freed me from Kant and sloganeering and reinforced the idea budding in me that the writer is not a clergyman. Um, I'd love for you to elaborate on that because I think that's a really powerful formulation. Look, there's a great Frederick Douglass biography by David Blight. And in it, David Blight points to how Douglass would often denigrate Native Americans to argue for the citizenship rights of African Americans. It's terrible. It's terrible. You know, it is very, very, very difficult to create, and I don't know that anybody actually does this. I don't know how you would do it. You know, a pure lineage. But again, I don't go to books. This goes back to the point about inspiration, right? I don't really go to books for inspiration. You know what I mean? Like, I don't go there to feel, like, great. So I, I think that's the starting point. Um, but the other part of that is, look, we are all human. And I, and I don't want to make excuses for this, you know, because I, I really, you know, stand by what I, what I said. I think that's a huge weakness in post-war. I don't know how you write a history of, of, of post-war Europe or of Europe period, modern Europe period, and don't talk about Algeria, for instance. There's very, very little about Algeria. Algeria is the big one. There's very, very little about, you know, Algeria. And, and, and I don't know how you do that. I say all that to say... I don't know how one writes about a period and does not have blind spots. I just, I just don't know how that, that happens. I think we... Ach- and we all have them as well. I mean, we, do, we do, we do, we do. And, you know, the day will come, the day has already come, <laughs> you know, where people look at my work and they say, this is missing X, Y, and Z. And they're not wrong. The big one I think about, again, you know, I mean, since we're on, you know, Tony and think about Obama and the war on terror. And it's funny because even as I was writing at the time, I knew I was missing it. I knew I wasn't getting it, you know, the way I I should. It's hard. It's really, 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 really hard. And if somebody could capture the whole of it, we wouldn't need other writers. Should those errors and those blind spots be pointed out? Yeah, they should. They should. They should. I do think we have to make a distinction between what is a kind of malicious erasing versus, you know, look, this is a serious flaw. Now, where that line is, you know, I'm not sure, but I just I didn't feel that with Tony. Right. And frankly, I wish he had, you know, spent more time on because I think um, the book would have been much more like it would have improved it. It wouldn't have count. Like, I think it would have actually reinforced much of what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, y'all, I just have to go back to this Al- Algeria point. I want to make clear that it's in there. I remember that, that moment, for instance, where the Gaul uh, becomes present and it comes out of Algeria. So I just want I know that it's in there. I think I'm talking about degrees, just to be clear. I want to ask one other thing that is striking about his work um, and is a thing in your work that some people have, have asked about. Tony's interpretations of history tend to emphasize contingency. There's this chapter on the um, Balkans, right? When the That's Balkans just chapter. fall apart. Ethnic cleansing, right? It's incredible, right? And what do he, you say? The Balkans didn't fall. It was pushed. It didn't jump. It was pushed. It ends with that line or something like that. Exactly. And his whole point <laughs> is he's starting with the people who said this was just ancient ethnic hatreds that bubbled up. That's right. And he says, No. That's wrong. This was human beings Mm -hmm. and politicians, Milosevic and others, acting and pursuing power that resulted in this. It didn't have to be this Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder if in your own reading of American history, you see 
alternative paths that could play out if, if different human beings make decisions in different ways, or if you see such a deep strand of white supremacy and racism operating. I mean, there's that passage in Between the World and Me where you say to Samari, you know, what Calhoun said in, in 1776 was true when he, he spoke of the beneath. It was true in 1776, and it's true now. There's this depressing continuity in this. And I just wonder how, how you think about those issues. Um, can you see a different American history? Or, or is it kind of faded in some way? No, I don't. I don't to go to faded would, to, would be to uh, go back to clericalism. You'd just be on the, the other side, you know? Um, so that chapter on the Balkans, I think, is really essential because that goes back to like what I was trying to clarify about this notion of hope. Because buried within that was this could have been different. We have it within our power for something different to be. And I, and I, I firmly, like, I believe the world is made by human beings, which means people did things. People made choices. Now, structure is a very, very real thing, but people create, even structures created. When John Wilkes Booth, you know, was a white supremacist, shot Abraham Lincoln and explicitly said why, that had effects. That had effects. When Abraham Lincoln himself, in an attempt to, you know, play politics, picked Andrew Johnson as his vice president, that had a huge effect. It had a huge, huge, huge effect. That wasn't just, you know what I mean? Oh, you know, let's just throw up our hands and, and, and whatever. It really, really mattered. You know, I, I, I agree with that. And it's oftentimes tough to get that, that nuance across to people. Do you feel people want to push you into that corner? I mean, the, 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 with, there's the term Afro-pessimist uh, that was mm-hmm. pushed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and came out of the conversation that was stirred by your book and others. Um, do you feel the label is, is a misapplication? I don't think it's me. You know, I, I, I think two things. I think, A, that's a very, very real uh, black intellectual tradition. I understand where it comes from. It emphasizes structure, and structure is very, very, very powerful. I don't think it describes me. At the time I wrote Between the World and Me, I had not read a single work <laughs> by anybody who would be characterized as Afro-pessimist, which does not mean it wasn't in the ether and it wasn't, you know what I mean, I wasn't indirectly influenced by it. But no, I don't think it does. Yeah, I have to say when I saw that some of those pieces, it doesn't fit you. Right. If, if you, you know, it, the person I know just seems eclectic and and sometimes, you know, very pessimistic and Mm -hmm. and sometimes optimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one other piece of Tony's biography that I want to get to, and we don't have that much more time, but um, you and I, when we first became friends, I think one of the things we always talked about was this funny thing that we'd both grown up in nationalist households. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a Zionist household background, um, where certain things weren't questioned and certain frameworks were given. You grew up in a black nationalist household. And and I remember those conversations we've had through the years. We still have them. Tony was someone who has said that and written that he became this ardent Zionist right. in his late his teens. <laughs> he went he went to a kibbutz. He, I think he went to Israel before 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about this in um, this great book, Thinking the 20th Century. And then he has 
a moment of disillusionment. And he, of course, becomes a very outspoken critic of Israel's occupation. He writes this essay in the New York Review of Books saying the two-state solution is dead. It didn't die a natural death. It was killed. <laughs> That's how the piece begins with this boom. Um, and he got hell for that piece. Um, I wonder if, if that part of his trajectory, I know I identify with it a lot. Um, I wonder if that piece of his life and that strand, what it means to you. Does it interest you? Do you it does, does it resonate? It does quite a bit. And, you know, you were asking that question of um, outside of, uh, of someone writing outside of your experience. So I'll, I'll say the first thing is I was kind of raised in like a heretical black nationalism, by which I mean, like I had the kind of parents that didn't celebrate Kwanzaa. <laughs> like that's what I, right. you know, so there was like a kind of, you know, yeah, we kind of believe this, you know, but... This part over here is total bullshit. So that, so I was set up, you know, I think at the very start to be kind of questioning and kind of skeptical. And even to this very day, you know, I, I struggle with it to some extent because I think culturally, culturally the black tradition is very, very important to me. The skepticism of the position in which black people occupy, being out of society, how that, you know, or out of, you know, the, the umbrella of quote-unquote human rights, how that ultimately sets you up to, in fact, be skeptical you know, of the entire project. You know, I identify with, with, with a lot of that. It's, it's the core of, I think, much of what I write. Uh, at the same time, when you start talking about it as a, as a political ideology, you know, I was raised in a world, you know, where you actually, you know, did think about, well, what if we had our own land? What if we had our own space? Because there's always this great what if project. You know what I mean? And what you come to realize or what I've come to realize, and this is hard, you know, for any oppressed group of people, is that oppression is not ennobling. It does not mean that there aren't certain people within a group that can take wisdom from their experience, can learn to, you know, think about the broader family, you know, of human, you know, struggle and human rights from that. But when you start talking about states and nations and tribes, and I mean that in the you know, least derogatory you know, way possible, that generally is not what happens. <laughs> you know, the skeptic's point of view is not the one that generally carries the day. Yeah, no, and I wonder, isn't there also that thing where, well, because you're a victim, you're exempt from what happens to every other That's nation, right? right? You right. are the special nation. You are the one that knows right. what it is to suffer. Right. Certainly uh, true in the case of... Um, the birth of Israel, but in the imaginary of any oppressed group, I would think. Yeah, and, and, and so when, you know, someone says, or some other group says, you're doing this to me, how can that be true? How, how, can, that, how can that be true? I have suffered the greatest, you know, human rights catastrophe, be that the Holocaust, be that enslavement and, you know, Jim Crow, you know, imaginable. How could that possibly be true? You know, and I think, you know, one of the, and I guess it's, you know, to steer back, I mean, this is why, you know, one of the reasons why I identify with the intellectual tradition. I mean, one of the things I think about the black experience here in America is we are forced to have that argument over and over again, largely because we didn't get a country of our own. It has happened with women, you know, and black women and what black feminism means over and over again. It's happened with class. There's, there's this constant churn and struggle back and forth about what is, it, what is part of the nation, what does it mean? And I'm thankful for that. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? I'm thankful because, you know, the fact of the matter is with power, you know, ultimately almost always comes, you know, the power to abuse. Look, if there was some, you know, black nation, I, you know, I always say this, if, if there was some black nation that was, you know, automatically established and I was, you know, a citizen of it, I would immediately be a dissident. <laughs> I would have to be, you know what I mean? Like I, I would immediately become a dissident to that state. You know, I would be outside of it. You know, even as I identify, you know, with, as I said, the literary traditions, the historical, you know, I, I, because I'm a writer, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think that's the writer's natural position? Yes. And I, I'm imagining you yes. do. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since we have just a minute or two, I want to read you one last quote because you're talking about writers. And th- this is a quote about language, and it's from Ill Fares the Land. Mm-hmm. It's a book about democratic socialism and, and how market values have kind of so dominated right our now. lives. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> truer today than ever, as you, as you say in, in the preface. Um, but it's also a book about how the market has stunted our imaginations and language. And he says very early on, why do we experience so much difficulty even imagining a different sort Mm. of society? Our disability is discursive. We simply do not know how to talk about these things anymore. I wonder if you agree with that. And if you think about the role of language in imagining a better world, Uh, we've talked a lot about not being naive about that, but, you know, just there he's getting at, at something different, I think. He really is. He really is. I mean, you have to, somebody says, I'm going to make government run like a business. And because of pre-existing ideas in the American imagination, you associate that with, you know, something good. Why? Why don't you think about the bailouts? Why don't you think about the banks, you know, circa 2008, 2007? Like, why? And that's because the dialogue and the imagination have been constricted. I especially feel that as an African-American writer. We are constantly, constantly fighting for space to have our ideas within the public square, to be considered, to be debated. I mean, this, this was, you know, reparations for me. The whole you know, point of case for reparations was to inject an idea within the public square to make it serious and to make people have to take it seriously. You know, we're going through it you know, right now with the abolish movement you know, around police. Put aside how you feel about it. Put aside you know, what you think of you know, when you hear defund the police. There are certain ideas about what police are that make people automatically say, this is not even an idea worthy of consideration. And let me push that even further, because I think the other thing that's happening is writers and activists, you know, I probably would include them in this, are being made to carry the weight of politicians. So the idea is that you shouldn't talk about this because it might hurt Joe Biden. <laughs> and your premier, you know, apparently, you know, your, your, your premier function here is to say things that help elect Democrats. Look, I get that. That's, you know, right now, you know, in this moment, everything seems at stake. I I, I get the pressure to do that. But the danger of that is the imagination is automatically constricted to things that can fit within the narrow constraints of electoral politics. That's how we got into Iraq. That right there, to bring the conversation full circle, that's exactly how we got into Iraq. Because what Susan Sontag was saying, right, we're so far out 
you know, of what respectable and responsible liberals could bear and what that would have done to anybody. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, think about, you know, 01, 03 and Democrats having to carry the quote unquote burden of Susan Sontag's critique. I mean, it was so outside of any mainstream Nobody discourse, wanted. right? There was, it was an, unth- it was an it unthinkable thought. It was an unthinkable thought. thought. And, and we as writers have to be on guard. We can't allow that to happen. We can't allow, you know what I mean, that, that you know, our thoughts to be, because they're very real consequences. What if it hadn't been unthinkable? What if it hadn't have been? You know, and now here we are 20 years later, and, and now it's polite, you know, and permissible to say, look, this was a war of revenge. <laughs> Let's be clear about it. These were wars of revenge. Yeah, no, I remember people um, on the far left talking about Afghanistan and saying this shouldn't be a war. This should be a police operation to to round up the people responsible. And that was so far far out out there. there. It was so far out there. And I have to admit of myself, I I mean, you just got swept into this current of, wait, 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 really? Uh, Really? A police operation? And you're right that certain... There's such a big gap, right, between what is politically um, convenient and practical for particularly the Democratic Party, but for, for, for those who are concerned about the direction this country might otherwise go in, and the broader question of, is this right? Those seem like two very different discourses. Right. And our, our job is to sit there. And that's what I, you know, I probably did not know it then during that period, because I felt like you. I felt very much like you. And I think a lot of times, like, the writer has not yet arrived to make the positions legible and clear and, in a, and, and articulate them in a way that people understand. But sometimes folks have the sentiment, the feeling that this is correct. It's wrong to go drop bombs. I mean, I just forget the arguments. <laughs> forget the arguments. It's wrong to go to countries, you know, miles away and bomb them to hell. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. And I don't need to hear your intellectual case for it. I don't need to hear, you know, what's going to happen. I reject that. On pro- Sometimes it's good to have that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you know I hear I mean? you. I, I, I have one particular friend who <laughs> he's sort of anti-intellectual, but in a great way. And he, yeah, oh, he yeah. often says that. He's like, you know, these, these guys are just twisting themselves into justifications. <laughs> it's just, what are you doing? Right. You know? It's just wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Listen, it's been such a pleasure, man. Um, I have to say, when we first we first met at some bar on Hudson Street, I would not have thought at that time I would be inviting you onto a podcast. <laughs> the idea that we'd be having a conversation anyone would care about. Um, I know, it's crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do, I do. Primary Sources is a co-production of Public Books and Type Media Center. Public Books is an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can learn more at publicbooks.org. Type Media Center is a nonprofit home for independent journalists. It's committed to building a more equitable future for journalism in the public interest. Learn more about its flagship programs at typemediacenter.org. Our show's executive producer is Caitlin Zaloom, the founding editor of Public Books. Our producer is DJ Kashmir. Our engineer is Jess Engabretsen. Special thanks to Kelly McKinney, the publisher and managing editor of Public Books, 
and Taya Grobo, Executive Director of Type Media Center. See you all next week for a brand new episode.